we as Christians sometimes shy away from the power of the Holy Spirit. We go, "Uh uh-oh, don't talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? You're listening to a special message preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, or to learn more about Jesus, visit thisisshoreline.com. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would illuminate this text of Scripture, that you would apply it to our hearts. We know that the grass and the flowers, they fade, that our lives are temporal, that our lives will fade, and yet we stand before your eternal word this morning with reverence, with awe, and with joy. We ask that you would now teach us and equip us and encourage us. We ask these things in the name that saves, the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, what is something that is worth waiting your entire life for. We have a a terminology that we've used in recent years, probably a a very current term the last 10, 15 years. It's the term bucket list. The idea of a bucket list is that this is a list of things that you would do before you kick the bucket, before you you die. What are some things that you have on your bucket list that you would want to accomplish before you pass away? Well, I asked some people this week on social media uh, what is on their life bucket list, and some of their responses were, uh, go to Alaska. I want to go to Alaska. Just a quick show of hands. Who has been to Alaska? All right, so we're jealous of you few. Good job. Um, Another person said, see the northern lights, so that might be connected to Alaska. So both, both of these are similar. Someone said, Boston in the fall. Boston in the fall. Um... And my favorite one was a friend of mine. He said, I just want to live to see my 100th birthday cake. (laughs) I said, I don't. Um, But as we conclude our study of Luke 1 and 2, surrounding the Christmas narrative, today we're going to see a man most likely, though the scripture doesn't implicitly or explicitly say that he's old or advanced in years. That's the term we've been using. It doesn't say that he's advancing years, but most likely he is. And what we're going to see is that he's going to check off the single greatest bucket list item in, you could say, human history. Remember, this is Luke's description of the Christmas narrative, and he's going to give us a a description of a man named Simeon, a man who waited his entire life, at least up until that point, to see salvation come to Israel in the form of her Messiah, the Christ. And I have to begin that the arrival of Christ is way greater than an Alaskan cruise. It's way greater than the Northern Lights. It's far surpassing Boston in the fall and much better than a birthday cake filled with 100 candles that'll set off the fire alarm. Today, we're gonna see four things in our text. And uh, Dean just read through it, but we're gonna see the law. We're gonna see the man, Simeon, We're going to see the blessing that he gives, and we're going to see the prophetess, Anna, in the concluding section. So let's look at the first section, the law. It says in verse 22, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses. That's a very important phrase, according to the law of Moses. 
they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem, from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, to present him to the Lord, as it is written, here it is again, in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said, here it is again, in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Two turtle doves. I knew that song was biblical. I knew it. Well, no, no, no. This has nothing to do with partridges and pear trees. Uh, so what is going on here? What is the pair of turtle doves, the two young pigeons, the time of purification? Why did Mary and Joseph leave Bethlehem and go to the temple in Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice? Well, if you're taking note, you want to jot a few verses down. Leviticus 12. Leviticus 12 explains that after the birth of a son, the mother would be unclean for around seven days. And then for an additional 33 days, she should keep away from all things holy. So uh, essentially 40 days, the, the uh, mom would be considered uh, unclean, okay? And so this was doubled when she gave birth to a daughter. So it would be 40 for a son, 80 for a daughter. Now, ostensibly, the husband is going to be with the wife. So arguably, he's also defiled. So they had to both wait. And that's what it means in verse 22 when Luke says, for the, when the time came for their purification. He's speaking of Mary and Joseph. And at the end of that time, at the end of 40 days, the mother was required to come into the temple and offer a lamb for a burnt offering, as well as a turtle dove or a young pigeon for a sin offering. And that was the standard middle-class offering. You would come in, you would offer a lamb and then a turtle dove or a young pigeon. If you were lower income, uh, we might say on food stamps, just really, really scraping by, what you could do is basically bring another turtle dove uh, or another young pigeon. And if you were basically living on the couch, scraping pennies out of the couch cushions to and like eating ramen noodles like some college students and you literally had, you were checking your bank account to see if you could even eat at Burger King today, uh, then you were basically to bring a portion of fine flour without oil and frankincense. Don't act like you weren't there, guys. Come on, you've been there before. So we read here that Mary brought a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So they're not in that higher middle income. They're not in the lowest of lowest poor income, um, but they're still in the needy poor income. I love that 2 Corinthians 8, 9 reminds us, Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now obviously Paul is taking that deeper. He's speaking of Jesus being rich with the glories of heaven and he traded that, so to speak, to, to clothe himself, to put on human flesh for our sake so that we could exchange his righteousness for our sin, and then we could become rich in the glories of heaven. That's the, arguably the, the, the real meaning of his, uh, his point there in 2 Corinthians. But in context, he's also speaking about financially and in a real literal and fiscal sense. Jesus became poor uh, through his poverty. Jesus was born into a poor family. We have to remember that. Jesus was born. He's born into a family. He was born into a family with in-laws and uncles and aunts and grandparents and traditions and memories and neighborhoods. He lived in the context of community. And his immediate family, as we read this text, was neither wealthy nor prominent, but neither were they 
at the very, very bottom of uh, the financial strata. Now, there's something else happening here. The two turtle doves were not the only thing they offered. The text doesn't say this, but uh, we know from the law that they would have also brought with them five shekels. So being a firstborn male, it says they bring him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. All firstborn males had been claimed as holy to the Lord or set apart for God's purposes, for sacred use. And this was in memory of the deliverance of the firstborn, remember, in Israel from the destroying angel, the Passover. It was through the sprinkling of blood. So if you're taking notes, Exodus 13 speaks of this. Exodus 13, 1 and 2, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Well, if it's a beast, that's easy. You sacrifice the beast and you offer it to the Lord and those who worked in the temple got to receive some of the meat. Yahweh, though, never endorses or accepts human sacrifices. So you weren't to offer your firstborn son in the same manner. Well, I'll just sacrifice my son like I did the bull. Uh, no. So in lieu of a human offering, God sets apart the entire tribe of Levi, one entire tribe, to be exclusively sacred in their vocation. Uh, they weren't to acquire any land because their inheritance was God himself. And this is noted in Numbers chapter 3. So instead of setting aside every firstborn male in the entire nation, in the entire population, instead God sets an entire tribe apart to be consecrated to him. So when Moses in Numbers 3 takes a head count, I just want to give you some math here. He, he counts, according to the scriptures, 22,000 from the tribe of Levi. This is all of the Levites. And he counted that up before calculators or Siri. So that's actually pretty, pretty impressive. So when he does this, God then has Moses count all of the firstborn males from all of the other 11 tribes. And stay with me. He adds up 22,273 firstborn males. So that leaves an excess of 273 males outside of Levi. So be, stay with me. Because there were more males firstborn outside of the tribe of Levi, to make it even or to make it fair, every firstborn of those 273 was to bring five shekels to the tribe of Levi as the price of redemption, to say, we're buying our sons back, so to speak. We are buying them out of temple service, but we're offering this in lieu of an offering. So many centuries later, this tradition remained. And it was considered honorable to bring your firstborn son to the temple to offer not only the required sacrifice, whether it was a larger sacrifice or the two turtle doves or just the, the, the flower and the incense, but also to give to the priest five shekels. And that's what Jesus' parents do here. They dedicate him in the temple and they consecrate him to Yahweh. I love that we hear babies crying this morning in the service because I wanted to uh, address... Uh, the idea of infant or pedo-baptism. What we see here in the scriptures is we see your heading should say Jesus presented in the temple or Jesus is uh, offered or Jesus is dedicated. And there are some who advocate for infant or pedo-baptism, but scripturally in the New Testament, we see that babies, babies are dedicated, believers are baptized. This isn't something I'm going to die on the hill and break fellowship with someone and say you're not a Christian over this. 
Um, but what we do see in the scriptures is that Jesus was not baptized here as a baby. He was dedicated. It wasn't until he was an adult that he was baptized by John to fulfill all righteousness. So we follow the New Testament. We practice believer's baptism, and we do baby dedications here at Shoreline. We're doing a mass baby dedication in January. So if your child has not been dedicated yet, we're going to do one big one uh, in the um, new year. Uh, and if you're asking, yes, we still will receive five shekels if you want to bring that. That's fine. <laughs> so notice how Mary and Joseph, notice how obedient they are to the law. See, Jesus, you, you see this phrase over and over. I pointed it out. But this phrase, law of the Lord, is mentioned five times in Luke chapter 2. Jesus' earthly parents were completely submitted to the law. Jesus didn't come to unhitch from the Old Testament but to fulfill the Old Testament. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to abide by the law, to completely submit to the law, and in doing so, to not transgress the law, but to be put to death under the law, so that you and I would not be under law, but we'd be under grace. Colin Smith says this, fascinating quote. He says, from Adam onwards, the human race has never produced a single person who has fulfilled the law of God. That's great news. It's terrible news, but it's also great news. No one has fulfilled. He says, we produce great athletes, Michael Jordan, Muhammad Ali. We produce great leaders of business. He says, Stephen Jobs and Bill Gates. We produce extraordinary minds, Pythagoras, Newton, and Einstein. But the human race has never produced a single person who has fulfilled the law of God. You see, that's what sets Jesus apart. He fully obeys the law. He also fulfills it. Remember, Paul told the Galatians, and I've, I've quoted this verse multiple times this weekend in prayers, but he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Mary and Joseph, they are obedient to the law. They're walking in step with the word. Parents, I want to encourage you. I want to I exhort you. I want to challenge you. That is the secret to successful parenting. It's not Googling, well, let me look up how to, how to parent. <laughs> That's not what we're to do. No, we're not to raise our children either in the fear of dad, but in the fear of God. We're to impress upon our children what Deuteronomy 6 says, not our family's wisdom, but the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. So we aren't to berate our children, belittle our children, degrade our children, terrorize our children. We're to set an example for them that's worthy of following. So dads, are you a dad who embodies, like Joseph, the law of God? The, do you embody obedience to the word of God? Moms, like Mary, are you providing a home where you're training your kids to memorize scripture, how to cherish the Lord, how to serve him? You see, Jesus had a wonderful role model in his biblically honoring parents. Now, we've seen the law. Now let's see the man. There's a man waiting in the temple. And it says in verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So if you're taking note, his name is Simeon. The name Simeon means the Lord has heard. We know names are paramount. If you don't know the name, what your name actually means, I, I challenge you to go look it up after the service today. Names mean things, especially in the Old Testament. 
In the book of Genesis, you remember Jacob, Abraham's grandson, wanted to marry Rachel. So remember, he worked seven years for her. He worked, and then on the wedding day, you remember this, Rachel's dad, sly guy, he hides her sister Leah under a veil, and Jacob didn't know that she wasn't Rachel. Remember that? He gets married to the wrong sister, and he wakes up the next morning, and he's married to Leah, and he realizes, oh my goodness. So uh, he says, well, okay, I guess I'll stay married to her, but can I still marry Rachel? I mean, talk about awkward for Leah. (laughs) I'll stay married to you as long as I can still marry your sister. And so Laban, the sister's father, says, yeah, you can have Rachel, but you have to work seven more years for her hand. And Jacob's like, remember, this is so romantic. He says, listen, it could be seven minutes because I love her. Seven years is nothing, right? Husbands, that's a good thing to say. When people say, how long have you been married? You're like, not long enough. (laughs) That's, That's what you need to say. So Leah and Rachel start having a baby duel. Never a good idea when moms get competitive, women get competitive, and kids are involved. These are bad things. So Leah gets pregnant, and and she's competing with Rachel. But the name that she picks for her firstborn son is the name Simeon. Notice this verse. She says, because Yahweh had heard that I was hated, he had therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. The Lord heard. What a great truth that the Lord heard hears. So Luke introduces us to Simeon with with three descriptors, and the the first two go together. We learn that first he's righteous and devout. One of these speaks to his relationship to man. He's righteous, or he's just. He's fair. He's agreeable. But he's also devout. And, And this speaks of his relationship to God. The word means to take hold of well. So he has clung to Yahweh. He is God fearing. He was a man who carefully obeyed and observed God's law. So in his relationship to God, his relationship to man, he was righteous, he was devout. This old man, ostensibly old, this old man Simeon had waited his entire life living righteously, living devoutly, but he still hadn't received what he was waiting for. And that was the consolation of Israel. If you're taking notes, circle that word consolation. The word is actually the same word we obtain Holy Spirit from. And and did you see how else Luke describes Simeon? He was a man who had the Holy Spirit upon him. The Spirit was empowering him, directing him, encouraging him, comforting him, and leading him. We as Christians sometimes shy away from the power of the Holy Spirit. We go, "Uh uh-oh, don't talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Get a little bit nervous. And what I don't mean by that is in an emotional way. I don't even mean that in an experiential way where we leave the church gathering with a smile on our face and goosebumps on our skin. I'm not describing some experiential thing. No, I mean the empowering of the Holy Spirit to do the work that God has called us to do, to be the witnesses that he's called us to be, to be strengthened with might in the inner man, to walk in mortification of sin and in righteousness and truth and in love for the body, and in witness to those who don't know Christ, and in submission to God and his word. You and I need the power, that sort of power, of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And so Simeon, is, he has the Holy Spirit upon him. I think that's fascinating that we see the Holy Spirit at work prior to Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was upon him, but he's waiting for the consolation. You could say the comfort of Israel. 
Essentially, he's waiting for the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40, which if you remember from Zechariah's prophecy about preparing the way of the Lord for John the Baptist, for, for Messiah, right before that, Isaiah says this, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That's the consolation he's waiting for, the comfort of Israel. He's waited his whole life for this to come to pass. And according to Luke, on this particular morning, he was led, he was compelled, he was moved by the Spirit to enter the temple this fateful morning. Not only that, but look how else the Holy Spirit had impacted Simeon. Verse 26, it says, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. So he had received a, a revelation, a, a prophecy, that he would not die until he saw the Christ, saw the Messiah, the Savior. And so I, I find it interesting that the Holy Spirit's doing all this work before Pentecost, before Acts chapter 2. John MacArthur says, the Holy Spirit convicted people in the Old Testament of their sin, prompted repentance, gave life, elicited faith, and drew them to God. Apart from his work, no person in any age can ever be justified, sanctified, empowered for service and witness. No one can understand scripture or pray in the will of God. So like Simeon, we also need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We need to be looking like Simeon and waiting for the comfort of Israel, which is found only in Christ. Brian Bell says, Simeon was led by the Spirit of God, taught by the Word of God, obedient to the will of God, and privileged to see the salvation of God. Now, not only that, but note the Trinity in verse 26. Did you see it? We learned that the Holy Spirit reveals to Simeon that he would not die until he saw, quote, the Lord's Christ. Lord refers to Father here, and Christ, of course, is the title Messiah, which refers to Jesus. And so the Trinity, the Godhead, is actively revealing the person of Christ to Simeon. Do you, do you see the mental picture in verse 28? Do you, do you see this? An, an old man picking up, holding in his hands the hope of all creation, the Savior of the world, our Lord Jesus, holding him up in his arms and blessing God. Though the child is resting in Simeon's arms, Simeon is also resting all of his hope of salvation in this child. So that's the man. Let's look at the blessing. This is known in some circles as Simeon's song, and it's known in other circles as the nunc dimittis, which is a Latin phrase that means now depart. And so you'll see why it's called that. Look at verse 29. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. He's basically saying, Lord, I can die now. This is fulfilled. You told me I would not die until I saw the Christ, and here he is. But he says, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon says, I can now depart in peace. This is according to your word because God had communicated to Simeon 
you'll see the Messiah with your own eyes. But notice that he says, my eyes, verse 30, have seen your salvation. The Jews would be expecting salvation from their enemies, not from their sin. Jesus didn't come to save Israel politically in his first advent, but spiritually. Now, don't be confused. Simeon's song is not merely a salvation song. It's also a missionary hymn. So for the Jew, they would have said, if they were listening, uh, standing by, they would have been like, okay, I'm a little confused. I have questions. What does he mean when he says that there's going to be a light for the Gentiles? Where's he coming from? even though they should have known that. For Luke's Gentile audience, this would have been edge-of-your-seat excitement. They would have been leaning forward like, what? The light of revelation for, the, for, for me, for the Gentile? Je- Jesus brings salvation not just for the Jew, the Jew first, but also for the Gentile? You see, the, the Jews would totally be amening the part where Simeon says, glory to your people Israel. But when he gets to the part, and a light for the Gentiles. Wait, hold on, time out. And we've spent lots of time in previous sermons looking at God's plan for the Gentiles. You've been in those studies. It's an awesome study, isn't it? But his plan, God's plan for the Gentiles was never an afterthought. Like, I'm going to create a temple where my presence will dwell with man. And, oh, you know what would be cool? We should add an outer court. We should be thinking about those Gentiles. No, it was, it was all the way back in, in Genesis when God spoke to, to Abram and his promise to Abram. It was that, hey, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. In fact, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That wasn't just that Israel's going to be a great host to Yahweh's temple. No, this was that through Abraham's seed, through his offspring, would be the Messiah. This was God's desire all along, to bless Abraham so that through his lineage, all the nations of the world would receive the light of the gospel. In verse 31, he says, you, this is Simeon, you've prepared it. So this is divinely provided, divinely prepared, divinely delivered. I said it at Christmas Eve, but I want to remind those of us who may be new to Christianity or maybe, maybe you've got some baggage to unpack and some, uh, I used to say like, there's a well that has been filled in with some debris and dirt and we need to unpack that well a little bit when we think about religion. Uh, because what I said at Christmas Eve is that religion says do, but Christianity says done. Religion says get to work, but Christ from the cross, what does he say? To Telestai, which is what? It is finished. You guys didn't sound so excited when you said that. It is finished. That is glorious good news. So I don't need to clean up my act and do all of these good works in order to receive favor from God and salvation. No, Jesus has done the work. He's fulfilled the law. Though I'm under the curse, now the curse has been lifted because he became a curse. And now I have the Holy Spirit who enables me to fulfill the law. And yet, at the end of it, uh, it's God who's prepared it. And, And notice that Simeon says, this is before the face of all peoples. All peoples. We live in a time where the phrase racial reconciliation, which I don't love that term because that implies there's multiple races. And when we look at scripture, there's two races. There's Adam's race and there's Christ's race. There's those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Now, there's a variety of ethnicities. And when we look at different ethnicities, we realize that this, is, this gospel message is for all people. So the gospel, it actually addresses and answers some of these so-called divisions that we have. 
So when we, when we fill out certain paperwork, we see these checkboxes on the screen. We see things like black, white, Latino, Pacific Islander. We have all these check marks. And so uh, I filled some uh, paperwork out recently that had all these different check boxes, these different items. And what Simeon is saying, he's saying all of these can be checked off. This gospel message is for all peoples. Jesus came to save all. No one is outside of his grasp. Isn't that a glorious proclamation for us? The, the hymn, The Love of God, says this, God's love so sure shall still endure, all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. See, in a world where there's darkness and there's despair and there's division, and we find that division along racial lines, so to speak, we realize, no, there's one race, ultimately, the, the human race, the race under Adam or in Adam. And yet, Christ has come. The light of the Gentiles has come for all. Now, let's look at some of the words of prophecy that Simeon gives Jesus' earthly mom and dad. Look at verse 33. His father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them. But then he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, pay attention, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And Luke puts this in parentheses. It's almost as if he's whispering in her ear, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, Mary, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Notice with me what their response is to his song. Their response is marvel. The word literally means amazed. And it's used by Luke later in chapter 8 when Jesus calms the wind and the waves of the storm on the lake. And Luke says the disciples were fearful and amazed. And they said to one another, who is this that the wind and the waves obey his command? That's the sort of marveling. It isn't just like a, hmm. It's a, it's a jaw-dropping amazement. Simeon blesses these perplexed and amazed parents but then he prophesies directly to Mary. And there are four aspects of this prophecy that are instructive to us about Jesus. If you're taking note, feel free to write these down, take a picture. We also post these slides every week on our website uh, under sermons if you don't have a chance to write these down. But these are the four things. First, many in Israel would receive and reject Jesus. They would rise by receiving Jesus or they would fall to destruction and judgment by rejecting Jesus. And it isn't any different for us as Gentiles. Today, you have the opportunity to receive Jesus, thus to rise, or you have the opportunity, because you're already condemned, to just continue rejecting him and thus fall. And there really isn't any middle ground. There isn't any dismissal of Jesus. You can't say, well, he's just, uh, Jesus is just all right with me. I'm good, I'm good. He's, he's just a good spiritual teacher. Which brings us to the second aspect of this blessing. Number two, he would be universally opposed. Simeon states this child is appointed for a sign that is opposed. There, there's a special significance connected with the Messiah. And his mere presence on earth simply incited opposition. And, and you and I still experience this, don't we? Because we have the hope of glory. We have Christ in us. So when you're hanging out with unbelievers, your light is penetrating darkness. And when you come into the darkness, you're going to feel that sort of tension. You're going to experience uh, that opposition because when you walk into light, people immediately experience spiritual uh, conviction. And often that creates enmity 
There's enmity between light and dark. There's enmity between truth and deception. There's enmity between purity and corruption because Christ is universally opposed. We have Christ in us. So it's not a surprise that when we go into the world, Jesus says the world's going to hate you because it hates me. One person said, Jesus is history's dividing ridge. The whole world is affected in one way or another by Mary's son. Never does one hear the gospel and not fall or rise under the hearing of it. Neutrality is forever impossible. And so this will be a, a, a sign that is opposed. Thirdly, though, uh, Luke says, or Simeon says about, uh, Luke says about Simeon, something very remarkable and a little bit odd. He says to Mary, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. We would argue that Mary is going to experience significant grief, particularly surrounding a sword. So remember, Luke obviously received much of this information from the apostles and most likely from Mary herself. He's relaying this information to Theophilus, the lover of God, to help him have certainty regarding the things he's already been taught. And so as Luke is historically collecting his data for this historic narrative, he would have most likely gotten a lot of this information from Mary herself. She would have said, yeah, so at, at the 40-day mark, we went into the temple, and this man Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And Luke, it's incredible. He, he, he shared this prophecy, and here's what he said. A sword will pierce your own soul also. Well, ultimately, that sword refers to Rome, at whose hands her son would face eventually capital punishment. Remember, it wasn't the Sanhedrin. It wasn't Herod. It wasn't Pilate. It wasn't the Roman soldiers who killed Jesus. Jesus died by giving up his spirit. No one took his life. He laid down his life. We need to make sure we understand that. But then there was an earthquake, and a Roman soldier confirmed that Jesus had already died. He didn't kill him. He confirmed he was already dead. Remember, he pierced the side of Jesus on the cross. When he did that, the scripture says that blood and water flowed out. And that means that there was a medical condition that most likely confirmed the, the method of death or the cause of death. And that was the pericardium, which is that fluid sac that surrounds your heart. Um, when blood and water flows out of your side, that's essentially the fact that that burst. And so blood and water mingled, intermingled, and Jesus would have died moments earlier. And so Mary at the cross, who is an eyewitness to his death, she would have seen with her own eyes a sword piercing the side of her son. And Simeon prophesied directly to her at the moment that sword would pierce her own soul as well. Well, finally, Simeon says that with Jesus, a person's inward heart would be revealed. You, you can only fake it till you make it in the church or with Christ so long. Eventually, his truth, the truth will come out. And he'll reveal if you are a true believer or a professor. You see, the scripture explains that the cross is a stumbling block to the Jew. The message of the kingdom, the covenant that Christ brings, causes many to fall or many to rise. It's a picture of resurrection life. And the sign is opposed today. I would say that's the sign of Jonah, of the one who came and who rose on the third day. And even today, it's not just Israel. It's, it's all people who stumble over the reality of the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection. And yet because God is sovereign in our election, some will fall when they hear this news and some will rise. 
Simeon, though, waited his whole life to see Israel's comfort, Israel's consolation. And as he held Jesus in his arms, he blesses God and he offers Christ as an offering. But there wasn't just one old person there that day. There was also an old woman, a prophetess. And so let's, let's conclude with this lady, Anna. Look at verse 36. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years. I love how Luke uses that phrase. She's advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up from that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So what do we know about this prophetess? Well, we know that she's from the tribe of Asher. We know that she was married seven years, but then her husband died, and she stayed a widow until she was 84. So Luke, again, references her being in the temple, and we learn that she never left the temple, but she was a prophetess. What does that mean? Well, that simply means that she spoke the word of God. What is a prophet, a prophetess? There's someone who declares the word of God. And we learn that she, she fasted, she prayed, and she served God day and night. Being of that great age did not hold her back from service to Yahweh. I don't read in this text, in these three verses, that Anna planted any churches, helped plant any churches. I don't see or read that she oversaw any ministries. I don't see that Anna helped with overseas mission work. I don't see that she sat on any boards or committees. No, she simply served God, even in her old age, by praying and by seeking him. And we all have that opportunity as believers, no matter what our age is. But see, in this exact moment, she walks into the temple and she sees Simeon, who would most likely be known to her, and he's holding up this baby. She sees Joseph, she sees Mary, and she walks up and she just begins to to thank God. She begins to speak to everyone, verse 38, to all who were also waiting. Notice what she's speaking about, the redemption of Jerusalem. She's speaking about redemption. Simeon's waiting for the consolation of Israel, and when Christ came, he joyfully proclaimed God's salvation, even to the Gentiles. And Anna had lived her entire life dedicated to Yahweh. She was serving in the temple, and now, the dwelling place of God, Emmanuel, was with men. So redemption was no longer something you dreamed about or looked in anticipation forward to. It was now here. Redemption was now born in the arrival of God's son. I think that Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna all teach us a little bit about what worship truly is. If we're going to apply this text this morning, we learn a few things. I'm not going to list them on the screen, but you can just uh, just chew on these a little bit. We learn from Mary and Joseph that worship is more. It's way more than just the musical moments that we stand gathered alongside God's people. No, if we love God, then worship means walking in obedience to God's commands. And we see Mary and Joseph doing that. We read in 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So as believers, how do we express our love for God? It's not like, Lord, I love you, I sang to you, but now I'm gonna disobey you later. No, we, we express our love for the Father by keeping his commandments, which are not burdensome. We learn that from Mary and Joseph. We learn from Simeon 
that worship is not just looking for the emotional or the experiential. No, worship involves looking for and seeking Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, unbelievers are veiled from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But we as true worshipers, we behold, we behold and look to the Son. And Simeon gives us that example. Well, we learn from Anna that worship is not just offering a catchy guitar riff or a heart-stopping harmony, nor is it pumping fog into the air for the light show. No, worship at its very core is simply offering our lives in service to the Lord. We remember this from Romans 12, don't we? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I've heard of saints throughout the ages that they couldn't go and, and reach lost tribes. They, they couldn't go down the ropes, so to speak, but they could hold the ropes in prayer. Even those who were confined to deathbeds were in those, those deathbeds praying and moving the gospel forward through intercession. And you can do that. We can offer our lives as living sacrifices. We learn from just about everyone in Luke's Christmas narrative from Luke 1 and 2 that worship is more than just singing. It's also speaking. It's speaking words of thanks and speaking words of redemption. It's rejoicing. It's blessing God. It's blessing others. And it's, as our theme has been, repeating the sounding joy. It's telling others about the hope of the gospel. Martin Luther said this as we conclude this morning. He said, Ah, dearest child, uh, Jesus, holy child, make thee a bed soft undefiled within my heart, that it may be a quiet chamber kept for thee. My, hot, my heart for very joy doth leap. My lips no more can silence keep. I too must sing with joyful tongue that sweetest ancient cradle song. Glory to God in highest heaven who unto man his son hath given, while angels sing with pious mirth a glad new year to all the earth. You see, what's going to offer hope as we go into a new year? Someone joked the other day and said, 2022 sounds like 2020, comma, two, as if we're going to repeat 2020 again. There are many people, even in this fellowship, that are still struggling with crippling anxiety. You're struggling with just the unknown, the fear of some terrible news that's about to break. And sometimes it's keeping you up at night. Sometimes it's terrifying you, terrorizing you. But the world around us is still looking for hope, still looking for consolation, still looking for redemption. And we have that in Christ. Amen? Amen. We have that at Christmas and we have that after Christmas. And, and I said this uh, at Christmas Eve, this holiday is not going away today. It hasn't ended. It's like, okay, Christmas is over. Now it's time to, to get our New Year's stuff out of, the, out of the bin. You see, this holiday, Christmas, has nothing to do with the gift giving, with the reindeer, with the figgy pudding, with the snowmen, with shooting your eye out, with Griswold family Christmas trees, with elves on the shelves, with mistletoe. Although, actually, I really appreciate it when my wife finds a mistletoe. I'm, I'm very thankful for that one. No, it has everything to do with the hope that redemption brings us. Listen, Christian, saint, you've been redeemed. Your sin has been paid for. You're going to be with heaven in the glories of the Father 
for all of eternity. So rejoice. Let your hearts be glad. Let's make music in our hearts this morning with gratitude. Let's share that news, that joy, with a world that is desperate and longing for some political ruler, for some decree, for some news to break that will bring that news, that will bring that hope and that comfort. And we have that news. You see, we have the power to save a people who are powerless in their fallen condition, to raise dead hands and embrace a savior. We have that truth. We have that power. We have that light that invades the darkness and declares war on the principalities and powers. We have the light that exposes, that decimates, that defeats the spiritual hosts of hell. So take heart. We have the work of God on our behalf, on behalf of hell-bound sinners. So take heart. Like Simeon and Anna, our response should be to echo praise and gratitude and joy, as well as declaration. What a thrill of hope. The weary world can now rejoice. So let's stand this morning and let's sing with the angels joy to the Lord. Why? Why can we do that? Because the Lord truly has come. Amen? Lord, we're so thankful that the finished work of Christ has now qualified us for the kingdom. The King has come, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace. On his shoulders will rest the government, every government, every king and earthly ruler will bow down to kiss the son and pay homage to the one who came from the father full of grace and truth. We're thankful for you, Jesus. We're thankful for the power of the Holy Spirit this morning to be witnesses, to declare your worth. And so, Lord, we join with the angels this morning and we sing joy to the world because of your arrival. And, Lord, we look with anticipation, as we said throughout the series, at your second arrival, at your consummation of your kingdom when you return in power and great glory. Until that day, Lord, may we be about your business. May we be fervent and faithful, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.